0: Everyone, welcome to episode 190 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily, and I'm Chris, and we are another 10 episodes, which means we have a give giveaway. Away. We're so excited to give away two
1: books. We have a novel and a nonfiction book, and these are two of my kind of recent-ish favorites. The first is Democracy in Chains, the Deep History of the Radical Rights Stealth Plan for America. This is by Nancy McLean. And I have talked about this on a past episode. Basically, it's looking back in time to how the right wing got together with billionaires to put democracy in chains, basically. So I really enjoyed it. If you are into political books, American history, current events, you will really like that one. And then the other is tangentially related to Scarlet Summer, but not really. It's The Dante Club by Matthew Pearl. And this is a novel, a historical fiction novel about the time period when Longfellow was translating Dante into English. It's a literary mystery. So much fun. I really enjoyed it. So these are the two that are our giveaway for newsletter subscribers. If you're not a newsletter subscriber, super easy to sign up. Just go to our website and you'll find the link there.
0: And we're going to give these away on September 15th.
1: Yes. And you get both. So you don't have to pick.
0: One lucky listener will get both of these books. And we just use a random number generator and then look at our newsletter list and pick the numbered person. Mm-hmm. So if you are not on our newsletter, please just go to com, and you'll see a tab there where you can subscribe.
1: Yeah. And as always, we only send one one email a month. I think there was one month when we sent two. Because we're rebels.
0: <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> I think we, it had to do with Scarlet Summer. So we're,
1: we're pretty uh, <laughs> consistent with that. And it usually comes out the last day of the month.
0: Right. And we want to say hello to two new members of our Patreon community. Thank you to Robin and Carrie. Thank you both so much for becoming
1: patrons. We really appreciate it. And it's cool to have somebody from Massachusetts right here in our neck of the woods. And then another listener from California.
0: Yes, Welcome. And congratulations to Julie, who sent us her Scarlet Summer bingo card with three bingos. Julie was busy this summer. She was busy. And I wanted to point out that, you know, we've talked about how people can make substitutions. And she made two really cool substitutions. One was Easy A, which is a more modern take on the Scarlet Letter, or it's inspired by, I should say. Yeah, really good. I watched that recently. And then um, The Crucible by Arthur Miller, the movie, which is available through Hoopla, which is really nice. And then she also watched The Hawthorne Legacy about The Scarlet Letter via Canopy. And both Hoopla and Canopy are available via libraries. Yes.
1: Yeah, if you don't have it or you have a hard time with that, just go to your local library and they'll help get you set up with those.
0: Yeah. So thank you, Julie, for participating. And we want to remind people that that bingo card is available at bookgoogers.com forward slash scarlet summer. And the deadline is September nineteenth. Yes, get your um, completed bingo card to us and you will be entered to win the grand prize. Yes. Chris, what are you currently reading? I've been reading
1: slash not reading The Inferno by Dante. (laughs) I've been kind of dragging my feet a little bit and, you know, dipping in here and there and reading about it, which is usually not a good thing for me. It means I'm procrastinating quite often, Um, but I am dedicating my free time tomorrow to really going through the Inferno fully. I have an audio book queued up with the translation that I'm going to be reading tomorrow. I'm picking (laughs) it up at the Ivoryton Public Library. It's the Pinsky translation. So Robin from Sacramento mentioned that she was listening to the audio version, and it was the Pinsky translation. So that's what I'll be doing tomorrow, but that's what I've been currently reading. So next time, listeners, I'm committed to saying this will be in my just read category.
0: Ooh, she's keeping all the listeners are her accountability buddies. Totally. (laughs)
1: You are all welcome to, you know, point fingers at me on social media if if I don't finish it by the next episode.
0: Well, I'm continuing to read Properties of Thirst by Marianne Wiggins. This is a novel about Rocky Rhodes, who's living in a California ranch that's threatened by the dwindling water supply caused by all of the water being diverted to L.A., And he's mourning the loss of his wife, Lou, who was French born, and they met and married and he convinced her to move to this ranch with him. She's a doctor and also a gifted cook. And sadly, she passes away. So that's why he's mourning. He's also raising his twin children, Summer and Stryker. And his twin sister, Rocky's twin sister, Cass, comes to help him raise them because he's sad. The book is taking me forever to read. It's very dense. It's over 500 pages. But I'm also, instead of freaking out, you know how that happens when you've got a big book and then you see all your other books sitting there gathering dust. I've just been reading it a little bit at a time and really enjoying it. The story's really changing as I'm reading it, too. Not necessarily that it stretches across a long period of time, but there's just a lot going on. What happens is there's the bombing at Pearl Harbor. And the American government decides to put a Japanese internment camp right here, even borrowing some of Rocky's property to put an airplane strip. So a lot going on, including yummy food. And the listener that recommended this book recommended it to me based on that as well. So you'll hear from me again. I'm not going to make the statement that Chris made that this will be in my just read next time. We'll see. But again, it's called Properties of Thirst by Marianne Wiggins. Beautifully written book.
1: Nice. Well, one reason I can say that I'm going to have the Inferno read is that we're having our Zoom discussion about it this weekend. So, (laughs) Deadlines. If I don't finish it, I'm going to be the weakest link. And who wants to be that, right? (laughs) Although it happens. So the other book I'm reading, and I just have been kind of dipping around in it. It's not one I'm going to... Commit to reading fully right now at this time, but it's My Friend, Anne Frank, the inspiring and heartbreaking true story of best friends torn apart and reunited against all odds. And this is by Hannah Pick Gossler. So, Hannah and Anne Frank were friends. I know everyone's familiar with Anne Frank's story. Hannah and her family were also Jewish and taken by the Nazis and put into a concentration camp. They were at Bergen Belsen, she actually was able to connect with Anne Frank there, which is just amazing and so heartbreaking. I'm dipping around in it, like I said, because I just don't have the emotional capacity right now to really read this. It's a memoir fully, but I wanted to let people know about it because I know Anne Frank is such an important figure and a lot of people have loved her memoir so if you haven't heard about this one it is out now hannah pitt gossler passed away in 2022 at the age of 93 and here's a picture of her i'm showing to emily Mm. of her with the picture of anne frank so a very tragic tale but hannah survived and was able to write this and it's a real beautiful opening with one of her grandkids coming running towards her with her daughter dropping the child off. And it's just, you know, to think everything that she'd been through and then to see not just the next generation, but another generation of her family running towards her is just beautiful. So again, my
0: friend, Anne Frank. I'm reading a memoir called Thin Places, A Natural History of Healing in Home by Carrie Nee Doherty. I heard about this book because I listened to her on Catherine May's podcast. I'll put a link in the show notes to that conversation. Carrie was born in Northern Ireland during the time of the Troubles. She was living in Derry, which was where the Troubles actually began. So she starts the book by really talking about that point in history, that time in history, and then it weaves into what it was like for her to grow up with one parent that was a Protestant and one that was a Catholic, and they had very little money. And she becomes enamored of nature and describes, you know, living in what I picture to be what we would maybe call the projects, like um, government housing, and they have a very, very little space in their backyard that's mostly cement. But she wants to spend all of her time out there and finds any little bit of nature that she can. Mm -hmm. And this is a memoir, but it's also nature writing, and history, I would say, and travel, also. I wanted to just, just talk about thin places, what thin places are, and how she describes it. Heaven and earth, the Celtic saying goes, are only three feet apart. But in thin places, that distance is even shorter. They are places that make us feel something larger than ourselves, as though we are held in a place between worlds, beyond experience. After years of visiting such places away from Ireland, I heard a voice calling me back, a soft but insistent cry, a call back to her own home. It's about her coming back to Ireland. I'm not very far into it. I'm also listening to the audiobook via Hoopla, and she narrates which is really fun because there is a lot of Gaelic in here. Cool. And of course, it's lovely to hear how she pronounces it. I should also say that this book was published from Milkweed Editions and thank them for the copy. Again, it's called Thin Places, A Natural History of Healing in Home by Carrie Ney Nice. Well, I'm also listening to a memoir
1: as well. Um Adversity for sale. You gotta believe, and this is by J. Jazzy Jenkins, who is a rapper, hip hop artist, and this memoir was one of the influencer free audiobooks through Libro FM this month, September. They offer ten free audiobooks to people who are affiliates of theirs, and I was looking for a memoir to listen to. And this one's really great so far. Jenkins is talking about his childhood, his growing up. I'm a little bit over 20% in, and he's 17 years old at this point. And I'll talk more about it next time. But I was really drawn to his voice, and he is also known as a leader. So this was also through HarperCollins, their leadership series, which is kind of cool. But he's known as being a real hardworking, upstanding kind of guy, even though he came from a background of being a thief and a drug dealer. He's an entrepreneur, very well-known artist, married with kids now and and all that jazz. So I look forward to reporting back more next time. Very good.
0: This episode is sponsored by Kissing Asphalt. Meet four-year-old Delicia, a carefree child who is about to have her world shattered. Along with her older brother, Nile, she is kidnapped from her home by her estranged father and taken to Iraq, a foreign world she has never known. This is just the beginning of a string of traumas, hardships, and assaults throughout her tumultuous childhood. For anyone who has struggled with childhood trauma, Delicia's unflinching journey through darkness and back to light will resonate. Delicia is currently offering a special limited edition paperback version signed by the author if you order directly from her at www.kissingasphalt.com. And those links are in the show notes. So Emily, what have you just read? I just finished a book called Lark Ascending by Silas House. Do you ever have a book where after you read it, you think, like, how did I exist in this world without having read this book? (laughs) I don't mean to overhype it, listeners, but that's how I feel about this book. So cool. Oh my gosh. And I didn't realize, I mean, it's been out for a while. It just released in paperback, and it's the winner of the Southern Book Prize. Silas House has written other novels. This one is a little bit different than his previous ones. So what is it about? The cover has this beautiful little beagle that's kind of at attention. So dog lovers warning you that you'll love the cover. It's about Lark, and Lark and his family, they're climate refugees, and they're fleeing the United States as it's erupted in flames, and they've made their way up through Maine, up to Canada, because they've been told that Ireland is accepting refugees. The opening scenes of the book are a sailing ship that they're on getting over to Ireland, and it is such a a ride, I'm here to tell you. I mean, I started this book on the train to New York this weekend, and I almost felt like this is a mistake because I am not going to visit anyone. I'm just going to go into a corner and read this book. I did behave, but I did read the whole book over the course of the weekend. So Lark and his family are headed to Glendalock, which is an area that his mother has always talked about being safe. And in the world of synchronicity, I'm going to read this. This is Lark speaking to someone he's run into. Have you heard of a place called Glendalock? I asked. Of course, it's an old monastic settlement right in the middle of the Wicklow Mountains. Some people say it is a thin place. That's where my mother intended to take us. She said it was the place of a spiritual vortex. Do you know what that is? Where the veil is thinner between this world and some other one. I've heard of folks who think that going to the vortexes are the only safe places left. It's hocus pocus, though, love. (laughs) And I'm not going to spoil who this character is that he meets, but I couldn't believe that I had two books along for the ride to New York with me, and one was called Thin Places (laughs) by Carrie. And then I get to this part in the book, and I'm like, oh, we're talking about thin places. And then you sent me an article, which we can talk about when you're talking about another book, But that author mentioned Thin Places, and I was like, oh my gosh, wow. (laughs) But I also want to just read the paperback edition of Lark Ascending has an essay written by Silas House, the author, and it's called The Darkness and the Light. And I just wanted to read a little bit of it because I think, of course, the author can describe their book better than I can. Lark Ascending is set in the near future. Lark a man in his early 20s is determined to reach the rumored to be safe place of Glendaloc. He's escaped the United States where fundamentalists have taken over, empowered by a climate disaster that has pushed most of the few people who are left into the Northeast. As a gay man, he is on the run not only from forest fires, but also from the new laws that make his existence a crime punishable by imprisonment or death. The scenario represents my worst fears about where we are headed if rampant religious nationalism and climate change aren't checked soon. Just as we have personal griefs, we also have global ones. Whether they be the destruction of the planet due to climate change or the demise of our democracy, this is the dark place Lark inhabits. I'm telling you, this is such a beautifully written book and such an important story. I am so glad that it fell into my hands. Highly recommend. Now, animal lovers are going to ask me, are any animals harmed in the reading of this book?
1: We mind melded. You heard me asking (laughs) that in my mind.
0: Um, Seamus is the dog, and he plays a vital role in Lark's life. There are a couple chapters from his point of view, which are beautiful. No dogs are harmed, but they do live... Their natural life is that, mm-hmm. that gentle. That makes enough? sense. Okay. Yeah. <laughs>
1: okay, yeah, that sounds like such an intense book, and you don't get that from the cover with this beautiful dog on this calm blue background. Mm-hmm.
0: I had no idea what this book was about. I had zero idea. It was sent to us. The publisher is Algonquin, who we have a really good relationship with, and I do think I read something about it that made me think, oh this is a book I'd be interested in. But I really feel like it picked me Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah, oh, that sounds
0: really fascinating.
1: And one I definitely want to read. It
0: is so good. Again, it's called Lark Ascending by the author Silas House. And as I said, I mean, from what I've read, this is quite a departure of what his other writing is like, story wise, not the quality of his writing, Mm -hmm. but highly recommend
1: So, is it setting you up to ask you if that is a contender for your top 10 of 2023?
0: I think both. I'm going to be so bold because of where we are. It's September. (laughs) That Properties of Thirst by Marianne Wiggins and Lark Ascending by Silas House will hit my top 10.
1: All right. You've heard it here, listeners. Yes. Well, I was super happy to finish reading the biography of Hawthorne by Brenda Wineapple that we purchased when we were at the Manse, the Old Manse in Concord, Massachusetts, where we went for a biblio adventure. The Old Manse, that's the home where Nathaniel and Sophia moved just after they were married. I had asked our tour guide which biography she would recommend, and this is the one she put in my hands. And that was Mary Beth Bass, our tour guide, who's also an author. So this is a very readable biography. It's a cradle to grave, so spanning his entire life. A little bit of, you know, ancestor action as well, so you know kind of where he's coming from and what he was born into. So readable. And the chapters are short as well. They're like 15 15 pages or so, which is wonderful, because you kind of feel like, oh, I could get in another chapter. So I read it very swiftly. And as I said in my very short review on Goodreads, sometimes cradle-to-grave biographies are really sad. You know that the person's going to be dying at the end, and oh, quite often I I really start worrying about them. Did they have a good end of life? Was it awful? In between, in the case of Hawthorne, it was almost a relief when he died. Not that he had a very long illness or anything. He went, I think, pretty quickly. But he just was a problematic person. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's he was not in step with his culture. Let's just put it that way. He was not an abolitionist. He was a white supremacist. He, so was Sophia. She had some things to say that are pretty shocking. Letters that she wrote to her sisters and which is kind of interesting because you hear of New Englanders of this time period, and most of them were abolitionists. Some of them wanted the blacks to be freed. Some of them wanted them colonized back to Africa. It's not that they were without racism, but Hawthorne sided with the wrong side of history, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then also one of the things, and I'm really glad that the author quoted this passage I'm going to read because I came across it years ago, decades ago when I had been first doing research on Hawthorne. And it's not one that's quoted ever really, unless you're digging for it. So many people are familiar with him saying, you know, that damned mob of scribbling women. And it's sometimes even said, as if it's some kind of charming thing, you know. Oh, Hawthorne. <laughs> Let me read this to you. And this is a direct quote from Hawthorne, talking about women writers. I wish they were forbidden to write on having their faces deeply scarified with an oyster shell. Oh, my. Yeah. I mean, he's talking about carving up women's faces. Mm. That's not just somebody who's a little frustrated. That's somebody who is borderline pathological, I think. Or angry. Well, enraged, I would say. And personally enraged. Which gets me to the point that Wineapple really makes that makes so much of what comes after make sense is that Hawthorne, his family fortunes fell. His dad died when he was four. They relied on uncles to help them. There was a lot of pressure put on Hawthorne. His mom had three kids, two daughters, and the one boy. And he was sent to college, which was a big deal. And there was a lot riding on his shoulders, and he wanted to be a writer, (laughs) which is not going to bring you income immediately unless you were kissed by the gods, basically, right? So a lot of people were saying to him, get a real job. A real man doesn't not work. So his manhood was questioned by doing this. And then with women writers being so successful, his problem was he was either going to be a lazy guy who's not doing anything, according to all of the other New Englanders who are hard at work, or he's going to be successful with a bunch of women. So psychologically, that was part of his issue. Mm. But yeah, that quote about carving up women's faces, I think, I don't see enough conversation about that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting to talk to Chuck, because remember, he had read all the letters and said that he felt like some of the Hawthorne quotes were taking out of context, because they weren't within the context of all the letters. Do you think that there's anything to be said for that with Wine Apple? I'm not trying to defend, I'm just asking.
1: No, I think when somebody says something like that, that is a big red flag. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any way you can take that as like tongue-in-cheek. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong. Maybe I'll do a little bit more research into it. I'll reach out to Chuck and ask him what he thinks, and you know we can follow up. I think one of the things with Hawthorne, and I know we're going to talk about this, I think there's a lot of apologists who want to make him something that he wasn't. Mm-hmm. And we do that all the time with historic figures, mm-hmm. all the time. And these were private letters where he was saying these things, He talks about Thoreau being ugliest sin. He talks about Abraham Lincoln as being the ugliest man he's ever seen. But they are in letters, Mm -hmm. for the most part. When he was touring some Civil War battlefields, and he met Lincoln on the way down, he described Lincoln as being very unkempt and disheveled and wearing ratty old house shoes. Which, I mean, I think we know that about Lincoln, but his editors cut that part. They toned that down because they're like, "You can't be talking about the president Great. of the United States <laughs> looking like some grub. Yeah. So that was a public article that he wrote that was toned down. Mm-hmm. There was also the issue of his children. He's often been described as a wonderful father And when I was reading in his American notebooks, he sounded like a wonderful father. He does occasionally say, like, oh, dear, I'm so glad my wife came and took them away because he wants to get some work done. Like, who doesn't say things like that? But their daughter, Una, they didn't let their children read newspapers, and they didn't let her read his novels, like The Scarlet Letter or The Blythdale Romance. They really kind of kept her isolated. And there was one point when she was maybe 13, when she starts feeling like she's going mad, I mean, was it because they were isolating her from current events? They didn't want the kids to know anything that slavery existed. Hmm. And everybody else in the family, they're a bunch of abolitionists who were sending these letters to them when they're living in England and living in Italy about what's going on in the United States, but they're completely sheltering their kids. And then when they're back in the United States in Concord, Una has episodes where it sounds like she is just enraged. You know, her brother gets to go to school, but she is not allowed to go to school because they don't believe in co-education, Nathaniel and Sophia, which goes also against their family of origin. Saying, so
0: how did, that, how did Elizabeth take that? Wasn't she the one that started kindergarten? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, the sisters, Mary and Elizabeth, I don't know because the author really keeps a tight focus on Hawthorne. Mm-hmm. So I don't know those details, or they're not discussed in this biography. Right. And she doesn't go into detail about Una. But reading those sections, I thought, oh, my God, it's like the yellow wallpaper. Mm. It's like a woman who is isolated and kept away from any kind of stimulating input. And
0: she goes mad. Mm. I just could not help but think about that in Una's case. So what's wineapple? Does she have a conclusion of anything she feels about him? Or does she keep her opinions out of it?
1: No, I think she has opinions throughout, and she doesn't judge him harshly. I would say. I mean, I think somebody could really probably go to town. I think she tries to keep it fairly well balanced, and that he was complicated, but ultimately unknowable, mm. because he really didn't. He didn't really let his hair down a lot. Let's put it that mm. way. And what would be fascinating it would be to have some of those earlier letters. Mm -hmm. He burned so many of the letters, as people did back then. I don't think he was a unique case in that regard. But no, it was interesting to know the flow of his life, the struggles that he had. He was always struggling financially, even towards the very end of his life. When he was afraid of being in the poorhouse, he didn't really need to be afraid, you know, from what the records show, that they had enough money and they were okay. But that was a constant worry for him.
0: Yeah, I think that's hard to give up if you've lived like that for years, I don't think it's easy to believe that you'll be fine. Yeah, That started when he was four, that his family was in harm's way, mm-hmm. as, if, as that goes. Yeah, so, yeah, interesting. And one of the interesting
1: things, too, he went to college up in Bowdoin College in Maine, and he made really good friends. There's three guys, the four of them are really great friends, and they partied a lot together as college kids have always done, apparently. And he realized all of those friends of his, they all had dads. You know, and he didn't have that male parental figure in his life necessarily. He did have his uncles, and some of that was kind of problematic. So that was an interesting point, too, Mm. in terms of maybe not being exactly secure in his manhood. She does not bring up the issue of him potentially having gay experiences. That's not something she goes into. There's one speculation that when Hawthorne and his uncle, one of them, For a while they shared a bed because the family was renting other rooms to people that his uncle could have attacked him one night but there's no evidence for that so i'm not even sure where that came from Mm -hmm. i might be blanking on footnotes or something like that i mean i think it's more possible for him to have been lovers with franklin pierce his college friend who became the president of the united states they're always very close They went on vacations together and in the scene where hawthorne dies they are away together at a hotel and supposedly they could see each other from their bedrooms they had adjoining rooms and when i was telling emily this story initially i said you know pierce said he looked at hawthorne and he was sleeping comfortably he was fine and then when i woke up in the middle of the night and checked on him he was in the same position and i felt his forehead and it was cold so he had died And Emily said, well, yeah, they could have been in the same bed together, not necessarily having adjoining rooms, you know? I mean, there's so many things that gay people have done through the generations to make it look like they're traveling companions when they're not. So who knows? Right. We don't know. Yeah. There is a little bit of conversation about how their marriage does kind of drift apart in later years, and that he was very controlled about her not having too many kids and making sure they were spaced out far enough. And that's the speculation, too, on his sex drive, I guess. Although the point was not belabored. There are other biographies on him. I'm not going to pick one up anytime soon. I think I'm a little hawthorned out at this point. Although I do have one of his short stories to read to get bingo. So um, we'll see how <laughs> that all about goes. about the bingo. Yeah. So but this biography, really, I highly recommend it. Brenda Wineapple. It's called Hawthorne, A Life.
0: We also have... Our third quarter read-along, the final book in our trilogy of read-alongs yes. for Scarlet <laughs> Summer, The Invisible Hour by Alice Hoffman. This is the book I think we've mentioned many times, was the book we found out was coming out in September, August, September, and so we kind of built Scarlet Summer backwards off of this. Mm-hmm. So we read The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, Hester by Lori Leco Albanese, and now... The Final Frontier, The Invisible Hour by Alice Hoffman. Yes, which is out now. It just came out. August 15th, Yeah, I think it came out. And to remind people, when we talk about read-alongs, we may have some spoilers. We will have some spoilers. If you haven't read the book and you don't want spoilers, skip ahead. If you don't care about spoilers, listen. If you're not going to read the book, listen. It's all up to you. You're in charge. Yeah. So this book is about Mia Jacob, and her mother, Ivy. The book starts with Ivy. And Ivy is a teenager in high school, and living in Boston. And she becomes pregnant from a young man who's attending Harvard. She thinks he's the love of her life, and they're going to run off and live happily ever after. And as sometimes happens, that is not the way he felt. He slams the door and says, I'm not really interested in you. And not that I need to be fair to him, but his lack of interest had already happened. He was a college boy who was having fun and saw her as someone fun to hang out with. And then I think he left for the summer and came back and had moved on to other things. And she was pregnant. He's no longer interested. Her parents then throw her out. Her father really yeah, throws they're, her out. They're pretty wealthy. They're very well off. And
1: yeah, she runs away. Yeah. They were going to take her. And make her have the baby and then give it up for adoption. And she was not interested in that. Right. Because
0: it was her baby. She wanted the baby. Right. She runs off and essentially, she meets up with another woman who's heading up to the Berkshires. They band together and run away to a cult. right? In Blackwell, which is
1: this fictional town in Berkshire County. And that is the connection in a lot of ways to the Red Garden. Which was the earlier novel by Hoffman that we have talked about, so they're in this cult, and it's a cult where there's one man who's in charge, sure, oh, yeah, and everyone listens to him. Children don't know who their parents are, really, or they're not supposed to care who their parents are, but Mia and her
0: mom kind of know right, and Ivy when she arrives to this cult, she's pregnant, as we've said. And Joel falls for her, and they marry, and once Ivy gives birth, he adopts Mia as his own. Although my understanding is all of the children are his, but I just made
1: them. Oh, and my understanding, too, is like, okay, spoiler alerts, stop now if you need to. Ivy dies his prior wife died. And I was like, does he have them
0: knocked off? Oh, yeah. 100%. Okay. All yeah. right. Okay. No, I wasn't sure if It makes if I, that clear. Okay. Yeah. It does? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. There's one point where he's angry. <laughs> We're really spoiling this. <laughs> At the end, where he even says to me, I, I took care of that. I took care of your mom. She
1: was never going to leave me.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Very controlling dude. I mean, talk
1: about escalating spousal abuse. Threats take them seriously.
0: Well, cults typically, I mean, we don't need to go down this path, (laughs) but are not run by people of sound mind and body. Yes. So I would put Joel in that category. Yes. And
1: now opposite of him coming on the white horse to save the day as a librarian in town, Mia sneaks into the library and grabs a book. You are not allowed to have books in the cult. So she hides them in the barn, under floorboards and things like that. But she keeps going back and reading and the librarian knows about the cult. She's a little concerned about this young girl who keeps coming in. And then later in the story, they become more to each other than just librarian and patron. The
0: librarian, Sarah, Sarah actually helps Maya escape. Right. And I want to say, I don't know if you caught this sentence, but... Sarah Mott in her early 40s had come to Western Massachusetts after receiving her master's in library sciences at Simmons in Boston, (laughs) (laughs) which Chris is now an alumni. So you and Sarah. Oh, yeah. So, of course, it's scary that part of what's happening at the Colts is by preventing these children from being able to read. They don't have an understanding of the outside world. They're trying to limit their understanding of the world around them, which mimics what's happening a lot in our country now with book banning, which is obviously one of the things that Hoffman is doing with this novel. Right. Yeah. So the first part of the book, I was really
1: falling in love with the novel. I texted Emily at one point, I think I was a little bit over like a page 150. I was like, man, I'm just like whizzing through this novel. And then a few pages later, I was like, ah. <laughs> okay, am I getting tired? What's going on? Maybe I'll just stop reading for tonight and I'll pick it up again in the morning. So what happens, there's basically two parts of this novel. So the first part is her mom, Ivy, and her and Maya story very much. The second part involves Hawthorne as a character in the novel because Mia somehow time travels because of the Scarlet Letter, which saves her life. And this is in part one, I believe. She just grabs this novel, and she's going to commit suicide, actually, when she opens it. And is immediately enraptured and realizes, like, oh, my God, this is my
0: story. Right. And with foreshadowing, there is the novel. When she gets this old copy of The Scarlet Letter the first off the edition. shelves yeah, of the library, it is dedicated to her, which is a mystery. Yeah,
1: there's a handwritten dedication. Yeah. Which
0: is a little foreshadowing.
1: Right, Yeah. So then Hawthorne comes along, and she's time-traveled to his time period before he's written The Scarlet Letter, and she's in love with him. I think a lot of people fall in love with authors that they admire, especially when there's such a hot portrait of him. Yes. but. At first I thought, okay, is it just because I just finished this biography of Hawthorne and I know that he did not believe in magic or women's equality? I'm not
0: really sure. What was that second part like for you when you first started it? I mean, I have trouble in a lot of ways with time travel in general. I don't have a fascination with it that I know some people have. I've heard an interview with Alice Hoffman where she says she's very fascinated by time travel and would love to be able to time travel. So I think that's why she put it in this book. I am very much a big fan of magical realism. And I don't think those things were the same here. I think it definitely was time travel, like she went through a portal and was back in time. And I felt the same way as you like I was loving the first part of the book so much and got what she was trying to do. I mean, she was taking on Roe v. Wade, essentially, right? And book banning, putting what's happening in present day into this novel. So we understand there's a lot to lose here things could go back to the way they were.
1: Right, and there's an there's a area in Salem in Hawthorne's time that is fictional, I think, where women would go to bury their dead babies or their aborted babies that no men in the town know about. So right. I'm thinking it's fictional. yeah. But who knows, I think yeah. a lot of towns might have had areas like that back in the day. And it's surrounded by herbs that can help induce miscarriage. Right. And, you know, it's Hawthorne's older sister, Elizabeth, who shows Mia that area mm-hmm. and what the deal is. I didn't like the portrayal of the older sister either, necessarily. What's interesting, because from the biography, she was a writer herself and a very smart woman who was, of course, curtailed by her circumstances and her time period and her gender. But she actually helped Hawthorne do a lot of his writing when he was writing for a magazine. Mm-hmm. A lot of the pieces were actually written by her. Anyway, sidebar.
0: So, what I did like about that second half, particularly because we had just gotten back from our Biblio adventure to Salem when I decided to treat myself and sit down and read the book. And so, when I got to the parts about Salem where we had just been in the Berkshires where we had been the week before or two weeks before, I loved that part of the book. So, I was torn because I felt... I liked that part. I just wish that she had gone back in time maybe a little differently. And I didn't love the love story between the two of them.
1: That happened awfully fast. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really felt almost as if two different people wrote the two different sections. Mm-hmm. Or, And I hate to say this, but that the first section was so beautifully written and it was so tight. You were just going along for this story. And then the second section, I just kind of felt like it was not developed enough. Yeah, rushed. Yeah, Yeah. very rushed and drafty, almost. In two different books. Yeah. That's how it felt to me. Yeah. Yeah. I took notes, and I have all my tabbies here. And I just love some of the quotes in here. This is Joel. So the guy who's the cult leader talking with Ivy. He'd wanted forgiveness, she could tell. Or maybe what he'd really been asking for was forgetfulness. So mm. I really like that because I think that is so true. Yep. Like people think forgiveness is forgetting mm-hmm. when it's not that. Yeah. But that kind of character, Joel, he's really mentally, psychologically damaged, undeveloped, immature. I'm not sure what the best way to say it is, but he had a really rough life mm-hmm. and was homeless for quite a while. And
0: with that first wife of him is how he got the land to do this commune. Right. Yeah. And I loved the relationship with Sarah and Constance, the librarian and her wife. Yeah. I loved that. Overall, I enjoyed it. But I did not love the part with Hawthorne. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I love the scene with Constance when Joel comes to try and kidnap Mia. She was doing story time. So she has a, a picture book in her hand and she sees what's going on outside of the window and runs out with the picture book in her hand. And She's this tiny little short petite woman and just goes off on this big man. Right. Which is really great. You know, just that fierceness and protection. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then also Ivy's family falls apart and is devastated by the fact that they turned her away. And I thought that was interesting, too, that she came back around to that. Yeah, that was. Ivy's
1: dad hires a private investigator to track down his daughter's whereabouts and finds where she is and that the child has been born and that she's actually married Joel, the cult leader, but he doesn't tell his wife. Mm -hmm. And then towards the end of the book there, she is a widow, an alcoholic. Her life has just been
0: consumed by what they didn't do for their daughter. Regret. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, overarchingly what I would say about this is also to remind listeners that when we choose a read along, For the most part, this hasn't been true of all of our books, but they are books we've never read before. I mean, some of them have been, I think. I think
1: only a few. I'm looking at our read-along shelf right behind you, and I think it's very few that we've actually read beforehand. I'm looking at Little Women. Which I hadn't read before. A Willa Cather novel. I hadn't read before.
0: (laughs) So Chris had read them, I hadn't.
1: Yes, we choose these books, Sight on Scene, And so we're experiencing them for the
0: first time along with any listeners who want to read along as well. As far as our Scarlet Summer is concerned, I think it was the perfect novel to read. I mean, it brought us into that space where we had just visited and all these Hawthorne-esque things we have done. So I don't have any regret in reading it. I have to say her writing, particularly in the first half, beautiful. I loved it. I still love Alice Hoffman. This is not my favorite novel of hers. (laughs) Well, I agree, and I love
1: that first section. And it was really interesting to read two different novelizations involving Hawthorne. Yes. And the different takes that the authors have and why. You know, they were both love stories, but very, very different in a lot of ways with similar themes.
0: Mm Yeah, yeah. And people are enamored of Hawthorne, even though this biography suggests perhaps he was not the best lover.
1: (laughs) Well, not the best person to form an intimate relationship with, because he wasn't very forthcoming with his emotions, apparently.
0: That was a much nicer way of saying it. I mean, I
1: think we, in our time period, have different expectations of A partnership Mm -hmm. between two adults, that it is a partnership and you're working together and supporting one another. And, you know, you don't really get that sense with Hawthorne's relationship. And I even wonder about these ideas of it being this perfect marriage. Mm -hmm. I mean, early on, all marriages are great for the most part.
0: (laughs) Well, but I mean, from the very start, he didn't want her to pursue her art. Mm -hmm. He didn't want Sophia to pursue her art, which you know, isn't very generous.
1: Well, and there's a while, a time period, when they are really struggling for money that she starts painting lampshades to make some money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he doesn't mind that when it's really critical. But, you know, I think when you're young, you think, sure, it's a struggle to become a writer, but I'm going to make it. And The Scarlet Letter, although it did get good reviews, it didn't bring him the financial windfall he was hoping for. So, you know, I think with age comes a lot more experience and understanding of what it's what's needed to run a household
0: yeah yeah
1: that's true i mean especially when you start adding offspring into the mix. yes
0: yes definitely yeah. so
1: so the invisible hour alice hoffman let us know what you think we can't wait we're going to have a conversation with listeners this coming weekend so after this posts ready, but next episode episode 191 we'll probably have a little bit of follow-up about the Invisible Hour, talking about what everyone had to say on that Zoom call.
0: And wrapping up our Scarlet Summer. I know, I can't believe it. I know, that's when we'll pick the bingo card winner and really wrap it up. So thank you to everyone who's been participating, reading along, commenting, going on Hawthorne or Scarlet Letter or Scarlet Summer Biblio Adventures. We've really enjoyed it. Yeah,
1: it's been so much fun.
0: It's, been, it's really great to see
1: connections between books and time yeah. and places. We're very fortunate to live where we are yeah. <laughs> to be able to pick a theme like this. So speaking of which, Biblio Adventures. Yes. Boy, did we have a fantastic Biblio Adventure to Salem.
0: Oh my gosh. Our longtime friend of the podcast, Karen, also known as Barker for Books on social media, joined us in Salem. What a treat.
1: So much fun to meet Karen. She has great reviews on her social media. So smart so well-read and just up for being silly with us. We had a really wonderful time. And for people who are curious about how many steps we get during a Biblio adventure, That day we had close to 16,000 steps because we walked all over Salem. Some Biblio Adventures, I'm sure we get maybe 2,000 if we're lucky.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Especially the ones where we sit in a library all day. (laughs) So um,
1: there is that about a Biblio Adventure too. You could really get up and get out and do a lot of walking. But so much fun that Karen joined us. We met up at the House of the Seven Gables.
0: Yeah, and we registered ahead of time and got tickets. It does get very busy there in the fall, so highly recommend you do that. And we went on a house tour.
1: Yes, we should say they're very strict about their tickets. You do have to buy the tickets online. You do have to show up ahead of time. They do not take late entries. They do not offer refunds. I'm sure that's because of the fall when they are totally packed. Like There is a, a line through the parking lot, they've said. So just be aware of that.
0: We went on a hazy, foggy, very atmospheric day, and pre-Halloween times, so it was quite empty. We were very lucky. We were on a tour with five people, I think.
1: Yeah, and it was such a good tour. Yes. Really enjoyed it. I had never been inside of the house before. Emily hadn't, but Karen
0: had years ago so this is her second time she showed up wearing her scarlet letter t-shirt that she had purchased there the last time yeah awesome that was
1: so fun to see that extra points for you karen yep i don't know what the points are for but
0: you got put that on your bingo card somehow
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah so our tour guide was jennifer and she really gave a good background to the house and the people who live there They're trying to do more research on the people who were enslaved there back in the day. You know, that house was modified over the decades for living purposes, but also to follow the novel, The House of the Seven Gables. So they made some additions to it to represent the novel, because even by the early 1900s, this home was already becoming a literary Destination. destination. Yeah, a biblioadventure site.
0: <laughs> yeah, and we should back up by saying that Hawthorne's cousin lived there. And that's why he visited there during his youth, really. Yeah. And that's where the idea of his novel, The House of the Seven Gables came from.
1: Yeah, the Ingersoll family. So, Duchess is, is what I think he called her. She owned the home eventually. And over the years it had been expanded but then it had been condensed again based on the needs of the family and when they were eating dinner one night and that's in the biography she says back in the day this house used to have seven gables and it just clicked with him he's like oh i like the way that sounds so it was some decades later before he actually wrote the story but that is just so cool to know that spark for a novel that's been so famous and a home
0: That is so historic. Yes, yes. And we got to go inside. There were tours going on behind us, so they really didn't linger. But I feel like we spent enough time in each room to get some good information. And we got to go into these really tight staircases.
1: Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, that was one of the additions to reflect the novel. Teeny, tiny, narrow wooden steps, bricked in, walking up, going around a little circle almost, well, a turn for right a circle, up into this room that the only way you can get to that room is using this secret staircase. That up in that room, there's a little lever that closes the door on the bottom because it's hidden, you know. Right. We were wearing our backpacks and Jennifer, the tour guide, said, I recommend you put your backpacks on your front. Right. And I'm like, whew, thanks for that bit of advice yes. because I had to actually turn my backpack sideways because I had my water bottle on the side. It wouldn't fit.
0: Yeah. So it was
1: tight. I was impressed that they let us walk up that.
0: I know. Because, you know,
1: I always, there's always a safety factor. Right. And so that was a little bit of danger that was fun.
0: Yes. <laughs> and then when we got up to the top, she continued the conversation, but there was also this model of the house that one of their, I think she said one of their volunteers had built. It was unbelievably precise.
1: Yes. There were two models. There was one that showed what the house looked like, I think when Hawthorne visited it. And then the other one is as the house is now. Right. But what's cool is you can pull away the different additions. And once you... When she pulled away one of the additions, Emily was like, oh, I guess I mean, it was just like, it was like a big reveal. Like you didn't expect that to happen. I you know? know.
0: It was like the the coolest version of Legos is the only right. way I can describe it, the yeah. way it was put together. But it was very cool.
1: So cool. And so up in that attic space, you can also see the original plaster walls with horsehair mm-hmm. insulation, which is neat to see. Yeah.
0: Yeah. She pointed out a lot of very cool details. And then also located on this property was the house that Hawthorne was born in that wasn't originally located there. They had moved it to this property.
1: Yeah, they have a whole campus of homes there. I think over the decades, she said, if there's a historic home that's going to be torn down for whatever reason, if it's fits, they try to acquire it and bring it over. So his birth home was built, I think, in the 1700s. And it wasn't a very good example of that style of architecture to begin with. So the town was just going to tear it down. They were able to purchase it for a dollar, but then obviously had to put out the cost to get it it there. there. Yeah, But that was really nicely renovated, and they had some nice signage and some artifacts throughout, including Hawthorne's desk, Yes, which was so cool.
0: Yeah, that was very cool.
1: And so confusing because when we were at the Old Manse, We were told that this little desk that is against the wall and kind of flaps up and down, this very tiny desk, was his desk. But from reading the biography and then seeing the desk in his birth home, Hawthorne actually purchased that desk after he graduated from college, and it moved with him. So he actually had that desk at the Old Man's.
0: So that was a little bit of misinformation. The way they described it is he liked working at this little tiny desk that faced a wall and wouldn't look out the windows.
1: Yeah. And that wasn't reflected in the biography. But you don't know where the information comes from and who chooses what information. So it may not be inaccurate.
0: Right. Who knows? Maybe he worked at both. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe he
1: saw Louisa Mint Alcott's desk like that, that she had in her bedroom at Orchard House, and was like, ooh, I right. want that. Although I don't know what Hawthorne would be doing up in her bedroom, but you never know.
0: Yeah, or maybe she just bragged about her desk. Who knows? Right. Or maybe someone was going around building little desks for all the writers living there.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Anyway, we wow, digress. digress. We could write our own story about that. We
0: could. <laughs> As the desks turn. Chris also brought along a handy book that helped us on our day in Salem. Yes, yeah, so the book is The North
1: Shore Literary Trail, From Brand Streets, Andover to Hawthorne's Salem. It's by Kristen Beyerfelt. And this is a book I picked up at Wicked Good Books some years ago. And it is all about the different towns on that north shore of Massachusetts, which is basically north of Boston. And it's a really cool book. It's through the history press. They do a lot of great local history type books. And of course, there's a big chapter on Salem, which features Mr. Hawthorne with addresses and all that good stuff. So we also then, after seeing the birth home, the house of the Seven Gables, we took a walk to find the home that he lived in when he wrote the Scarlet Letter.
0: And we found it, and there's a plaque on it. And as we were standing there taking pictures and talking about it, a man came down it's a very big property and it has, I think it looks like it's split into three or four apartments now. So we were hypothesizing about which was the room that Hawthorne wrote the Scarlet Letter and this guy comes out with his little puppy. So we ask him.
1: Yeah, so we ask him after we petted his puppy. Um, <laughs> so, you know, Hawthorne, would, do you know what room he he wrote it in? Or anything? He's like, yeah, in my living room. He's like, <laughs> top floor, third floor, facing the window, that window there. He's like, and it hasn't changed much since that time, other than having a TV in the room.
0: And then he also said, and if you're wondering, no, I think we actually asked him any ghost sightings or anything. And he said, you know, I know I live in Salem, but I don't really believe in that stuff. And no, no,
1: (laughs) yet. Yeah, so no ghosts there. And then the other house that we went to was a home owned by one of Hawthorne's uncles where the family lived for the long time that he called Castle Dismal I think is what it was and that was fun because as we're walking down that street there is a guy on a balcony talking on a cell phone and he saw us and waved mind you we're still wearing
0: our stickers from the
1: house of seven <laughs> yes. gables we're pretty obvious <laughs> we're three middle-aged women walking around with a guidebook and, and stickers on our chest so then we realized we passed it up and we went back and then he's like pointing at the sign for us and um we were chatting with him a little bit, and he's like, it's haunted. He's like, I hear stuff.
0: Yeah, he's like, the guy haunts me all the time. <laughs> yes. I believe were his exact words. So we laughed because, you know, totally different words spoken by this man than the other man we ran into. Yeah.
1: So that was just fun to see some of the locations um, of Hawthorne's life. And then we walked to another part of town and went to the Salem Athenaeum, where
0: Hawthorne checked out books Yes. And then just a couple blocks down was the public library. Yeah, the Salem Public Library, which had been a
1: private home. And Captain John Bertram had donated it after he passed away to be the town library. Amazing. Yeah. Gorgeous, yeah. gorgeous brick building. His dates were 1796 to 1882. So,
0: And they had a picture in there that he, even towards the end of his life, when he was living there, he... Wasn't very mobile, but he liked to sit in a window and wave at people passing by on the street. Yeah, and we also saw the Bewitched statue, which is downtown from the Bewitched television series.
1: Yeah, that was fun to see. And alert for any of you local to Salem, there is a little free library on that corner that needs your help and support. It was empty. That's right. We couldn't believe that. Yeah, that was the first. Well, you know what? The one at the old man's was empty, too. So. Oh, that's true. We filled that one. We did not have.
0: We weren't close enough to our car to put books in this one. Yeah,
1: so if you're hearing this and you live near Salem, check out that little free library and fill it up. Yes. Then we did go to the witch memorial, the women and men who were victims of the witch delusion.
0: Yeah, and I printed up something about that because I saw that there was an organization called Voices Against Injustice that is the one that's responsible for putting that together. Just a few quick facts. It says, January 1692, start of accusations in Salem Village, now Danvers, with a slave to Chituba being accused by a bunch of girls. And then the first execution was June 10th of 1692. 20 people are memorialized at this site and it's quite moving it's done with stone stone walls and then there's a piece of stone jutting out that then etched in each of those 20 are the different names of the people and their dates and how they were killed yeah most of them were hanged one person was pressed to death yeah which i had never heard of
1: yeah i saw a movie some kind of which movie when i was a kid when somebody was pressed to death and it oh, was horrible. it's one of those scenes from being a kid that i can still picture very vividly mm. yeah that's memorable yeah it's a wonderful monument because the stones that jut out they almost look like benches mm-hmm. that you can sit so the carving of the person is on one side and then it's blank on the other side so you can almost imagine somebody sitting there with their ancestor each stone did have flowers placed on it by different people because there are different flowers on on several of them.
0: Right. And I just wanted to say that it was made possible by a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts, and it was dedicated on August fifth, 1992, by Nobel laureate Eli Wiesel. As you're saying, it's designed to be a place of respect and reflection. Really beautiful.
1: And it's right next to the old cemetery that's Mm -hmm. there that was closed. And I don't know if it was closed, Locked already because it was dusk. When I had been there before, you could actually walk through that old. Yeah, that's cemetery. my guess.
0: I mean, we visited it. We we had gone to supper and then we're walking, and it was definitely dusk. So my guess is they had yeah. closed it. You know, I'm sure it's. Op- I would think it's open. Yeah. Um,
1: and then it was pretty dark, and we were walking around, heading back to the car. And when we did make it to the Hawthorne statue. That's on one of the main drags, but we didn't really get a great photo because
0: it was dark. It was a little dark and a bat flew, remember? Yes. A bat flew down really close to us and we were like, oh my God, we've been looking for Hawthorne's ghost all day. Here it is. <laughs> <laughs> so right as we're standing at the statue, it was a fabulous day. Highly recommend going to Salem. I'd like to go back. Yes.
1: I would too. The only thing that we didn't accomplish that day was going into a bookstore. They were closed by the time we were, yes, you know, yeah, having the time to do that from seeing the other sites, but we'll be back, Salem. We it's will. such a fun town to walk around. It gets super crowded in October, just so you all know, but there are so many walking tours that you could take. There are a lot of museums. We didn't get to go into the Peabody Museum because they're closed on Wednesdays unfortunately. So I know I'd like to go back to that museum. I've I've heard great things about it.
0: Yeah. And one of our listeners, Lorraine, who we were hoping to meet there as well, had said that you must go to the Peabody. So Lorraine, we will come back and we'll give you some warning next time we do.
1: Yes. So that was fun. So much fun.
0: Well, we also had another Scarlet Summer related Biblio adventure. Yes.
1: We did a watch along of the 1934 adaptation of the Scarlet Letter with some listeners. It was so much fun to
0: do that. It was so much fun. We had a hard time figuring out how to make it happen and finally realized that we could just zoom because it is available to watch on YouTube. So we'll put that link in the show notes. It's just over an hour. Very easy to watch. It stars Colleen Moore. And one of the things that shocked me at the very beginning as the credits roll is that she was given top billing with huge font for her name. Over all of the men. And I was just really surprised by that. Yeah.
1: It was a different time in movies. And I had read actually that women were directors quite often in early films. Hmm. Yeah. So that was really fun. And we had time to talk afterwards. And one of the listeners pointed out, you know, who Colleen Moore is and i hadn't made the connection that she is the person who's the focus of kathleen rooney's new novel from dust to stardust a fictional character named doreen O'Dare is based on colleen moore and she was the the original flapper of that time period of the roaring 20s and 30s
0: yeah it's amazing it is amazing So overarchingly, we all thought it was really interesting and fun to watch. There was one part of the movie that was not true to the book, which was that they inserted these characters for comic relief. Yeah, these two guys, like
1: (laughs) mismatched men, you know, a big guy and a small guy. One of them is seeking the hand of this woman, and everything goes awry. Right. And there was a funny scene with something called a courting trumpet, Yeah, which is this long tube that has at the ends at each end a piece that you can speak into or a piece the other side put over your ear so people were able to whisper things to each other through that so there's this whole comic shtick where the man who wants to marry her has his friend do the talking and she thinks oh he's gonna ask me
0: it was very eighth grade, as I said, when yeah. I saw it. Like, send your friend with a note to tell somebody that you like them. Right. But anyway, it yeah. was funny, and it was so not Scarlet Lettery. It was
1: not. So that kind of takes up the Pearl segments of the Scarlet Letter, because they didn't adapt that. Like, they didn't show Pearl in the woods or anything right. like that. The storyline really focused on Hester and Dimmesdale, Right. you know, showing their relationship right as it may be yeah and the adaptation was i thought costume wise i had a question about the women wearing i called them pilgrim hats you know the tall steeple hats because women were wearing them in one scene and i'm like what is that kind of being a weird 1930s thing happening and so i did a little research about puritan clothing and it turns out women did wear those hats they were called steeple crowned hats and women wore quaifs, those little skull caps. So they wore those when they were out and about, but they would put the hat on top of that. And I was just like, wow, never knew that. They didn't have buckles on their hats because those were really pricey. But what I was interested to find out is that Puritan clothing was colorful. It wasn't black and white. Oh, I didn't know that. They reserved their black and white or black, especially for Sundays hmm. and special occasions. Hmm. That was their fancy clothes. Their other clothing was regular 17th century wear for people of whatever class they were from. So there was some manifests from ships of the pilgrims coming over and it described their clothing. Green pants, blue vest, Hmm. things like that. So that was fun to learn about. Yeah, yeah. All from that movie.
0: I'm glad we watched it. Thank you to everyone who joined us. Again, it's available on YouTube, so I'll put a link in the show notes. And it's good for your bingo card. It is good for your
1: bingo card. And just one more tiny little thing, the girl who plays Pearl, her name is Cora Sue Collins. She was born in 1927, and she's still alive. She's 96 years old.
0: Yes, she's still giving interviews. I think that's amazing. (laughs)
1: Yes. So thanks to everyone who joined us for that. That was fun. I'm so glad we had an opportunity
0: to chat about it afterwards. Yeah, that was really nice. So I also went on a Biblio adventure to New York City to go visit Aunt Ellen, who's here from the West Coast. And we decided to go to a bookstore, shocking. So we walked up to the Strand. Ellen was looking for a book by Annie Ernu for her book club. Annie Ernu was the Nobel Prize winner in 2022. And we went to the fiction section under E and couldn't find anything. And I saw someone working there. And she led us over to a table that's just filled with award winning books. So that was really cool. And they had all of Annie Ernews books, which have been republished with new covers by Seven Stories Press. And Ellen was looking for a woman's story, which was originally published in 1988. But again, has been revised and updated since she won the Nobel. And this is a memoir that Erno wrote after her mother's death from Alzheimer's. And it explores the mother-daughter relationship. I will say, when I go to the Strand, which has not been many times, I find it very overwhelming. It is huge. yes, And it was a Saturday, so it was packed with people. I find it much more manageable if I'm looking for something. So it was helpful to have this task to find Ellen this book. So thank you on Ellen. (laughs) (laughs) So upcoming jaunts. We have a final adventure for our Scarlet Summer on September 21st. We're going to go to Boston. I'm so excited. Cannot wait.
1: We are going to walk around and see some of the places where Hawthorne lived. We have addresses. We're going to go to the Boston Athenaeum where he checked out books and read
0: and also is in the
1: invisible hour yes right and then we're definitely going to have a meal at the chipotle where the old corner bookstore was and you know hawthorne was in there there is a brief mention of the bookstore in that biography by wine apple that hawthorne would sometimes go and visit and they would hang out behind the curtain away from the public view and smoke cigars and talk about books and <laughs> all that jazz. That's great. Yeah. The other thing I have coming up, super excited about, Laura is going to have a public reading of one of her plays that she's been working on. It's Yours and Words, which started originally as a short play. She had uh, also done it as a radio play, like an old-timey radio play that I know we shared as one of our episodes for our Christmas episode one year, I believe. So, you know, she's developed it into a full-length play now, and it's going to be part of Green Stage Guilford, the festival this year, which runs from September 17th to the 24th right here in Guilford, Connecticut. It is a festival that has music, drama, dance, storytelling. All of these different artists have a week's worth of development of their play or their music or whatever they're doing so they can really work in Laura's case with the actors to further develop the play and then culminate with this public reading which is really exciting so her play is going to be on September 17th at 7 p.m. right here in Guilford
0: we'll put a link in the show notes for more details and we'll also put a link in the show notes to that reading we did on the book Cougars that was several years ago
1: yeah, I also am looking forward to watching a new biography of Joyce Carol Oates that's coming out on September 8th. It's called A Body in Service of a Mind. And so that's going to be in theaters. We'll put a link in the show notes because it lists the theaters where this will be showing. And then it's also on Apple TV. Oh, very cool. Yeah. I haven't been a big reader of her work. I've read maybe a half dozen of her 100 novels. I know one I do want to get to next would probably be Blonde, which is her novel about Marilyn Monroe. Oh, cool. It's supposed to be really good. Upcoming reads. I'm going to be reading, as will Emily, a novella. I have it in a collection of her writing, Carson McCullers' Reflections in a Golden Eye. I hadn't heard of it before. With our friend Kate from the Bronx, we are planning to go to Nyack, New York, to see Carson McCullers' home there that she had purchased. We had been talking with Kate about which one to read by McCullers, and what they had on the shelf was The Wedding Party and then Reflections and a Golden Eye. And Kate had already read The Wedding Party, so we decided we'd read this one,
0: Reflections. And all I know about it is it's set on an army base, more to come. Yeah, more to come on that. I have some very exciting upcoming reading that Chris will also be doing. These are literally hot off the press. They just arrived today. Something So Good It Can Never Be Enough poems by Shuley Kaywood. Super excited that her new collection of poetry is out available now for purchase from shuleykwood.com. She will sign it, she will personalize it, get yourself a copy. Yeah,
1: looking forward to that very much.
0: I have, thanks to Aunt Ellen via A Little Free Library in Berkeley, Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy, a graphic novel by Ray Terciero and Brie Indigo. This is a graphic novel, and it's a retelling of the classic story of little women, and it's an interracial family living in a New York City apartment with a white mother working double duty really hard, and a black father that's been deployed to the Middle East. Very cool. Thank you, Aunt Ellen. I cannot wait to read this. Uh, that is so awesome. I, I haven't come across that. No, I've never seen it. Oh, that's great. In the Out Now category, "Morning in this Broken World by Katrina Kittle. Katrina was a guest on episode 188. Creep, Accusations and Confessions by Miriam Gerba. That book is getting some serious marketing, Big, big billing. I see it everywhere. So mm-hmm. it's a memoir. Yeah. And then also From Dust to Stardust by Kathleen Rooney. And you sent me an article with an interview about that book and Kathleen Rooney, and she mentions thin places. Yeah. So the fairy aspect with that is Colleen
1: Moore had created this fairy castle that is at the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. Yeah. Thin places. Yes. Yes.
0: Magical realism. (laughs) Well, thank you all for sticking with us. This is
1: just us, this episode. Yeah, thanks for listening, and we'll see you again in two weeks. Happy Happy reading! reading. (laughs) Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media, Goodreads, or email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. If you'd like to help support our podcast, please tell others about us, leave a review wherever you listen, and consider becoming a patron. Even a dollar a month is a big help. Learn more about that on our website, bookcougars.com, where you'll find the show notes for this and all of our past episodes.
0: Thanks, everybody.
1: This episode was edited by Pat Keough Sound Design.